This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2009. Hello, this is Ed Linenthal, editor of the JAH, welcoming you to our fifth podcast. In this program, we speak with Tufts University professor of history, Peniel Joseph. Professor Joseph has written a state-of-the-field essay on black power that will appear in the December 2009 issue of the Journal of American History. Peniel, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Peniel, why don't we start, uh, if you would talk a little bit about these very interesting problems of the definition uh, of, of black power. You mentioned a couple of the complicating factors, uh, the way that black power exists in the American imagination, the mostly negative presence of black power uh, in conventional civil rights narratives, and then perhaps not surprisingly that this term still remains a a contested one. Certainly. um, Part of that contestation has to do with really the origins of the term. Um, when we when we think about the origins of the term historically, it's um, usually traced back to Stokely Carmichael uh, in June 16, uh, 1966, in Greenwood, Mississippi, where Carmichael, who's an activist for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is uh, one of the leaders, along with Dr. King and Floyd McKissick and others, on the Meredith March against fear in Mississippi that late spring into the almost summer um, of 66, and he unleashes the term "black power." Um, and as soon as he unleashes that term, it's going to cause a national scandal and controversy. And pundits and journalists and commentators are always at odds with Carmichael and others who adopt the term uh, as to what exactly does the term mean. Carmichael is going to be very sort of basic and say say what he means by the term is just political self-determination, that black people, where they outnumber whites, should be in charge of their own political destiny. Um, and he had just come from a project in Lowndes County, Alabama, where, where blacks were 80% of the county, yet only uh, one person was registered to vote as early as the spring of 1965, and he had tried to implement that definition of black power. Um, as the late 60s progresses, there's going to be uh, multiple definitions of black power, but Carmichael, the Black Panthers, and other groups are really talking about political self-determination um, that being said, the media and journalists are really going to define black power in different ways. Most of the time, it's going to be connected to violence. Um, at times, it's going to be connected to um, anti-white sentiment or a sentiment of sort of overthrowing the United States government. And when we think about that term, black power, it really actually predates Carmichael's usage of the term. Um, people like Paul Robeson used the term Negro power. Um, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. in 1965 had a famous a speech where he talked about um, black power um, as really a, a, a political movement. Um, uh, Richard Wright had used the term black power in 1954 in a book talking about the former Gold Coast, uh, which would become Ghana by 1957, and its liberation from British rule. So that term, black power, and even people like A. Philip Randolph had used used uh, at least uh, variations of that term uh, during the 1940s. So when we think about this term black power, as it develops historically in the post-war era, it's going to be very, very contested. Uh, in the national context, it's really going to be very, very looked upon as a very, very negative term and really a term and a movement that, that sort of allows or precipitates the unraveling of the civil rights movement. 
And we think historiographically, the way in which the first generation of historians who were trying to write narratives of the civil rights era, the way in which they treated black power, largely, with, with some glaring exceptions, they treated black power as sort of this negative phenomenon that basically um, destroyed the more progressive and interracial civil rights movement. Can you talk some about the evolution of that historiography? Certainly. When we think about that first generation of historians, for the most part, most histories really look upon black power as really something that signals the death knell of the movement. Two uh, exceptions are going to be William Chase in 1980 in Civilities and Civil Rights, which is a, a local study uh, of Greensboro, North Carolina, and the civil rights movement that comes out of um, really the sit-in movements in the, in the late 1950s, early 60s. And his last chapter looks at black power in Greensboro, and Chase makes the argument that, at least in the context of Greensboro, black power activists were actually local community organizers. And even though at times they used intense rhetoric, they were really more focused on grassroots practical issues, which is not the way in which the movement is usually characterized. Um, another exception is going to be Clay Carson's In Struggle, which takes black power seriously, even though Carson's very critical of black power and really looks at black power and snicks turn towards black power as, as really um, being a pretty much a negative turn. Um, but for the most part, when we think about the, the massive histories by David Garrow bearing the cross and Adam Fairclaw to redeem the soul of America, and in the first volume of Taylor Branch's trilogy, uh, Parting the Waters in 1988, uh, black power is, is not uh, uh, looked upon in a, in a very positive, positive light. Now, in terms of evolution, uh, William Vandenberg in 1992, his book, New Day in Babylon, is really going to be the first uh, historical book just devoted to black power um, that, that looks at the movement seriously and really looks at the movement more positively, especially its cultural aspect. Um, it's important to note in the 1980s, there were a series of books by um, the historian Manning Marable, uh, books like um, Race Reform and Rebellion, and um, other other books that um, Black American politics that looked at the Black Power movement uh, in the context of a of an analytical and historical exploration of Black radicalism that looked at it as more positive. But I would say that William Vandenberg's New Day in Babylon is very important because uh, that's a book that mainstream historians really took a, a very close look at, and that started to um, help a, a conversation start about about black power in a in another context. Has the emergence of very focused studies of of local community and the dynamics uh, of of black power and grassroots organizing and grassroots activists been part of de-demonizing black power as this uh, sort of abstract theoretical threat? Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, one of the signposts in terms of the evolution of this, of this historiography is going to be um, Tim Tyson's Radio Free Dixie, uh, which was published in 1998, um, and uh, Kamosi Woodard's A Nation Within a Nation about uh, Mary Barack and black power politics in Newark, uh, New Jersey, which was published the following year. And both of those studies are really um, local and national studies. And in a way, what Tyson's book does is really um, reframe the way in which uh, we look at civil rights and black power, because 
Uh, Robert F. Williams is the leader of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina, and he really was a forgotten figure, one of these obscure figures, but who was a very popular figure at the time. And when you read Tyson's book, you really see the way in which there's this whole ferment of black radicals in places like Harlem and places like um, the South who are connecting uh, civil rights struggles to uh, struggles against colonialism and struggles for independence in Cuba and other places, and the way in which they're really um, existing side by side in the same milieu as people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. So what's interesting about Radio Free Dixie is that it, it really forces a, a, a reframing of the chronology of what we think when we think black power actually started. And then when we look at a, um, a nation within a nation uh, about Amir Baraka and, and black power politics and New York, New Jersey, that was the first case study that really looked at what were the practical consequences of this black power experiment in a major uh, American city. And what Woodard, Woodard argues is that um, in terms of black power in Newark, it, it helped successfully revitalize um, uh, black nationalism as, as a practical political project that actually aided in the election of the first black mayor of the city in 1970, Kenneth Gibson. What about the significance of the Black Panther Party, Peniel, in, in this story? Your own uh, book, Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, which came out in 2006, is certainly a, a major uh, book in this field. But talk, uh, talk to us some uh, about the significance of the Black Panther Party and where you situate them within the whole movement of black power. Well, the Panthers are a very interesting case because the Panthers are really probably the most famous and iconic group, irrespective of race, to come out of the 1960s and the era of social protest movements. Whether you're in Germany or England or the Caribbean, if you show somebody a picture of the Black Panthers, even now in 2009, they're going to get the symbolism and get what that means. And really, the Panthers are the group that most um, journalists really tackled both during the movement and after. So there was really a stream of, of writings on the Panthers, but historians were relatively late to uh, the project of really trying to do detached, objective um, histor historical work on the Black Panthers, and we've really seen that over the last um, 10 or 12 years. So the way in which I situate the Black Panthers, and then I'll talk about the way in which Black Panther, the new historiography does, is uh, the Panthers are really growing out of a wider project of, of black power activism um, that starts in the 1950s and 60s. And more specifically, they're actually growing out and take their name from uh, Stokely Carmichael's grassroots movement uh, in Lowndes County, Alabama, which is nicknamed the Black Panther Party. So the Oakland Black Panthers, which are started in October of 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, they're going to be young uh, black uh, militants who actually take their inspiration from protest movements that are going on in the South, in, in the Black Belt of Alabama, and try to really apply that politics of self-determination to their own experiences in, in Oakland, California. And by the late 1960s, we're going to see uh, a proliferation of Panther chapters all across the United States and even internationally. Um, what's really interesting about the new scholarship on the Black Panthers and thinking about um, historical works uh, like Jane Rhodes's Framing the Panthers, um, Curtis Austin's Up Against the Wall, uh, Uhuru Williams's Black Politics, White Power, which is a case study of the Black Panthers in New Haven, Connecticut, um, 
and, and really a stream of other uh, case studies and national studies, is the way in which they're trying to situate the group historically. So on one level, we can look at the group um, like Williams does in New Haven as really a byproduct of the evolution of civil rights, the black power radicalism, and the way in which that group in New Haven really focuses less on provocative rhetoric, even though there's going to be controversies, but more on creating a breakfast program and a poor people's initiatives. Or you've seen books like Robert Self's American Babylon, which looks at the Black Panthers as the outgrowth of really a contestation for black political power in Oakland over a, a half a century, uh, starting in the post-war period. And what Self does is really look at the way in which the Panthers, by the early 1970s, they, they actually transformed themselves into local power brokers and tried to achieve um, municipal power by electing Elaine Brown to the city council and Bobby Seale as mayor of, uh, of Oakland. And even though they lose, they actually garner 43% of the vote and really become players in, in Oakland municipal politics. So what's interesting about the Black Panthers and the historiography on it is that we've moved, we're moving away from the historiography that just completely demonizes the Panthers as sort of these um, romantic revolutionaries, uh, romantic self-destructive revolutionaries at the time period, and really looking at the way in which uh, the, the group itself had a political character that at times has been detached from um, its actual day-to-day impact on the communities where it existed. Where are the, where are the descendants of, of the Black Panthers right now? Well, I'd say that their descendants, it, it really depends on where, where one looks. I'd say that at the grassroots level, we still see um, the, de- the descendants of the Panthers in um, militant um, um, nonprofit groups that are anti-poverty and urban, um, urban groups all across the country. Uh, I'd say uh, there, there are other descendants as well in terms of some uh, young people who try to run for elected office because the Panthers tried to do that as well. And then there's going to be descendants who are really trying to start up um, uh, uh, a kind of cultural politics uh, that that looks at African-American history, um, that tries to transform existing um, educational and pedagogical curriculum. So the Panthers tried to do all of those things. So I'd say that when we think about the descendants, it it depends on where one looks, but it's going to be at the local level, um, at times at the national level, and also in terms of educational institutions. Peniel, talk a little bit about the maturity of the field of black power and where you think the historiography will be a generation from now. Well, certainly, in terms of the maturity of the field, I definitely feel that the the field is maturing. And we're seeing this in works that are uh, really sophisticated um, uh, books and and essays. Uh, The work of Rhonda Williams on black power in Baltimore is a great example in her work on black women uh, these are uh, Christina Green's um, um, case study of, of uh, Durham, North Carolina, and poor black women there. What we're starting to see are works that uh, Matthew Countryman's up south in his work on Philadelphia. Uh, some of the most exciting work is actually connecting um, urban history, civil rights, and black power all together, and examining the way in which when we look at black women who were uh, participating in poor people's movements, it really reframes our thinking of black power at the local level. So we're seeing that more black people actually participated in the movement in just local, um, relatively unknown anti-poverty 
um, and social services struggles uh, at the grassroots level than in groups like the Black Panthers or SNCC or, or any of these well-known organizations. Another example is um, Kent Germany's um, New Orleans After the Promises, which looks at uh, black power politics in, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and the way in which um, a number of different organizations use the rhetoric of black power to advance um, uh, really small D democratic propositions uh, in services uh, in service of, of economic and, and racial justice uh, for for African Americans. Um, uh, Winston Grady Willis has a great case study uh, challenging American apartheid. Uh, in, of Atlanta, it looks at SNCC and Black Power activism in Atlanta, and actually sheds light on different organizations like the Institute of Black World and different um, uh, political formations uh, in 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 the South. So one of the things that we're seeing is that we usually think of Black Power as a urban phenomena on both coasts, uh, where there was no um, real formation in the South or the Midwest, and new case studies are really showing us that that's not the case. Uh, James Smethers, the Black Arts Movement, is a great example of that, which looks at black arts activism um, and goes beyond just uh, really the major figures like Sonia Sanchez and Amiri Baraka, but goes into black arts formations in New Orleans, Miami, and other other Southern manifestations. So I think that's one of the um, more more interesting aspects of this. And really, the, the the relationship between civil rights and black power shows the maturation of the field where we're seeing new case studies um, uh, that really connect civil rights and black power and don't see those movements as mutually exclusive, but see them as paralleling and intersecting with each other, depending on when, where, where one looks. We've really been talking about this, Peniel, in uh, the context of the United States. Is part of the growing maturity of black power studies the uh, ability to see American black power within a transnational context? Um, and are there some interesting ideas and scholars that are, that are at work at this now? Oh, certainly, certainly. My, my own work um, in terms of waiting till the midnight hour certainly attempted to do that and really bring that international context in as early as the post-war era, because we can bring it in even earlier. But looking at the way in which Ghana and Cuba and African uh, decolonization movements really impacted um, activists from Malcolm X to Maya Angelou to Robert F. Williams, some of whom went overseas, some of whom lived in Ghana, some of whom, like Malcolm, toured Africa as early as the late 1950s. Some, like Robert Williams, went to Cuba, they went to China. And so there's this really rich exchange and ferment. By the 1960s, we really see that exchange with Stokely Carmichael going to London and Cuba and Vietnam and Africa um, and, and activists from those areas also coming to the United States. So uh, James Smethers' book, The Black Arts Movement, um, there's a whole slew of different essays where people are writing about this. So when we think about black power, its impact on the Caribbean and Europe and the third world um, is, is a story that still has to be written, but certainly it's being actively written um, as we speak. In terms of in terms of where the historiography is going to go, I think we're seeing examples of this. We there's there's new books. Um, Hassan Jeffries has a terrific new book out um, called Bloody Lounds, uh, which is subtitled Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama, and that's the first case study of um, and a major case study of uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Movement. 
um, that Stokely Carmichael was a leader in, but that really gives us this concept of the Black Panther. Um, so we're seeing case studies. Uh, Clarence Lang has a case study of St. Louis, which looks at um, black urban development in St. Louis from 1936 to the 1970s and really spends significant time on black power and civil rights in St. Louis. Um, Stefan Bradley has a new book out about Harlem and black power and the, 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 the campus sit-ins at Columbia in 1968. Um, so there's really exciting works being done, and I think that we're finding a lot of scholars devoting their time to looking at the local story, which is going to help us have a much more panoramic and, and empirical basis for, for sort of continuing to rewrite our national and international history of black power. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you're certainly at, at the center of this maturing field. Uh, can you say something about your own continuing work, Peniel? Well, certainly. I, my, my own work has really been devoted to looking at the way in which black power transformed American democracy. And when I, when I used to say that, I think historians would <laughs> routinely ask, well, what do you mean by that? And um, um, what I mean by that is really the way in which um, black power, no less than civil rights, actually transforms American democratic institutions, whether it means um, institutions uh, for electoral processes, both locally and nationally, whether it means institutions where people are lobbying for a, a more rigorous and robust domestic and foreign policy, um, whether it's anti-poverty or urban renewal or um, treatment towards Africa. Uh, black power activists are part of all these things. I mean, in a very substantive way, we see it with the creation of black studies programs and departments and cultural centers that continue to flourish in bookstores. Um, we also see it uh, in the way in which um, the politics of black identity are transformed. Before the black power movement, African-Americans were called Negroes or, or people of color, and then they became black and African-American. And we also see it through the first wave of black elected officials that are going to be put in office because of a combination of the Voting Rights Act and the politics of racial solidarity that brings people like Richard Hatcher in Gary, Indiana, uh, Kenneth Gibson in Newark, New Jersey, Coleman Young in Detroit, Michigan, uh, Maynard Jackson in Atlanta, Harold Washington in Chicago. All those, in a way, are black power um, mayors. And even formations like the Congressional Black Caucus are, are uh, manifestations of the black power um, the black power movement. So when we think about uh, black power and its transformation of American democracy, um, usually that's not thought of as a sub substantive legacy of the movement. So I think what my work has tried to do is really show the way in which, again, somebody like Stokely Carmichael is a, a civil rights and black power activist, but he's really one of the most important people to um, try to advocate for voting rights in the 1960s. Uh, even under the rubric of black power. So that term at times um, uh, serves to negate <laughs> what the movement actually produced. But if we look at it empirically, we can see um, the movement's legacies in terms of transforming American democratic institutions are really rich and vibrant. Thank you, Peniel. You were very involved with the media during this last presidential election. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this watershed election and its significance for American history? Well, certainly. My, my new book, um, which is called Dark Days, Bright Nights, um, and the subtitle From Black Power to Barack Obama, really speaks to these issues. And I think what we saw in 2008 with the historic election of um, Barack Obama as the 44th president of the United States is really um, the evolution 
of, of aspects of that black power movement. Um, when we look at uh, Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, and the real politics of militancy in the 1970s, we often forget that there's a transition period um, from the 70s to the 80s with people like uh, uh, Harold Washington and Jesse Jackson really emerging as power brokers within the context of black politics. And so when we think about um, uh, the election of Barack Obama, I always go back to the presidential runs of Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, which really changed the ground rules of the Democratic Party that allow for proportional representation and allow for the watershed event that we saw. Um, on another level, when people look at somebody like Barack Obama, I think there's been real um, fascination with the civil rights movement, which helps us as historians, a real fascination with you know, how did the country that was based on racial slavery, and even up until 45 years ago, there was a lack of voting rights and a lack of just civil rights for African Americans. How does that country elect um, a black president? And I think what we see is that the civil rights movement, but also the black power movement, set the groundwork um, in motion uh, for that historic election. So one of, the, one of the things that people talk about or talked about in the 1960s was um, were these laws going to really substantively transform the country's character and conscience? And we're, we're I think we saw we see in the 2008 election that certainly they did at least to a large extent, at least a large enough extent to allow for the for the election of of the first black president. In terms of media, I think the media has been very interesting because I think the election of Obama provides sort of a happy ending onto a civil rights narrative that's usually very uncomplicated in the way in which it's uh, portrayed in the media, with Martin Luther King as the heroic figure who, who leads everyone out of um, a, a, a situation of racial segregation. As a historian, we know, and as historians, we realize that it's, it's not quite that simple. So I think I've, I've resisted this whole notion that Obama just represents um, sort of the capstone to the civil rights era. Uh, where he he really is representative in the movement that brought him in of the complicated evolution of of these civil rights victories, and also it's connected to black power. I mean, people have not wanted to talk about black power in the context of um, this election, but one of the things we uh, often um, don't remember is that there were black power activists who wanted corporate power, who wanted electoral power, who wanted to desegregate the production of wealth in this country. Um, who, whose real politics were less about revolution and more about access and more about controlling existing um, institutions in, uh, of American social, economic, and cultural power. So from that perspective, you, you can see the legacy uh, and, and its connections with Obama, even as, obviously, uh, politically, um, that would be untenable to say that. You mentioned uh, narratives, and I want to read you just a, a bit from near the end of your state of the field and ask you to think about this for us. You write the following. Even as we recognize the transformative impulses of black power politics in U.S. society, scholars must grapple with and confront the era's darker impulses. Black power activists trafficked in overblown rhetoric, polemical excess, and macho posturing that has helped obscure their accomplishments and diminished their historical legacy. The movement's use of violence as a political strategy, its condemnations against whites, and its almost casual misogyny deserve sustained and critical scholarly attention. 
Black power contains elements of Greek tragedy, including fratricide, incarceration, forced and self-imposed exile, mistaken identity, wrongful deaths, and decades-long political odysseys. Neil, this strikes me as a very, very important uh, commentary observation that you're making about the complexity of the Black Power movement. Please talk a little more about this. Certainly. I, I, I like to say that historians are like umpires in the sense that they're supposed to just call balls and strikes and really not, um, um, uh, you know, you know, pitch uh, service pitchers or catchers or, or, or any other players on the field of history. Um, when we think about uh, the challenge of writing um, histories, objective histories of the Black Power Movement, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that the the first generation of historians really were more receptive to um, a standard narrative of the movement as negative. Um, now, that being said, with the new historiography and the new subfield of Black Power Studies, we're probably seeing studies that find more positive attributes um, of the movement. I, I think the, the, the most important um, aspect of this, uh, as the field continues to grow, is to have critically complex studies. And I think we're producing that. Um, at the same time, I think that uh, the very fact of, of field building um, and, and field creation, there's probably going to be some studies that err on one side or the other. Um, that being said, I mean, I think there's, there's been books by political scientists, uh, Cedric Johnson, um, Adolph Reed, uh, others, uh, Dean Robinson, that are very, very critical of the movement um, and, and perhaps uh, err on the other side in terms of the politics of, of, of just saying, well, nothing positive uh, happened. Um, I think what historians have to do and what I've tried to do in my work, uh, even when I'm talking about the Panthers, for instance, and when I'm talking about... Um, uh, uh, people who were talking about violence or using violence is really call them as I see them in terms of uh, balls and strikes and, and not try to sidetrack or sidestep, again, the movement's, um, the movement's misogyny, um, the movement's, uh, at times, very overblown rhetoric. And uh, the movement's, um, or some aspects of the movement's uh, rhetoric of, of, of violence and, and, and violent overthrow. Um, one thing I will say, though, is that what's interesting about the movement's flaws and shortcomings is that what historians have not done historically, but they're doing now, is to look at look at that in a very local and situational context. So instead of painting a broad brush based on um, um, the sexism of one group and say, say that sec and extrapolate that sexism or misogyny to an entire era. They're really looking at, okay, even though there was this huge misogyny, what about, um, you know, women of the era, not just women who were in these groups dominated by men, but black women who were in groups that were dominated by black women, not just even um, self-described feminists who were a, a tiny but robust voice, but black women who didn't describe themselves as feminists, but who described themselves as grassroots activists and organizers who actually um, looked to black power as a positive uh, and transformative um, rhetoric. So I think what's interesting and what's needed uh, is, is really, really complex and uh, complicated narratives that refuse to shy away from the negative uh, and, but at the same time, um, 
try to present a very holistic and imperial, empirically based uh, picture and portrait um, of this era. That's probably a, a good place to uh, to end our discussion. Uh, Peniel, thank you so much for, well, both for your State of the Field, which will be out in our December 2009 issue, and for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you so much, Peniel. Well, thank you for having me. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in February for our next program. Once again, if you have comments or suggestions, please email us at jahcast at indiana.edu.